Hi folks and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. Delighted today to be joined by Bill Treasurer. Bill is a good friend, worked with him on a number of projects with an organization called ISA. We met through that. He's just one of these rare characters who has energy, thoughtfulness, and the ability to get messages across very clearly and succinctly. And he's the Chief Encouragement Officer of Giant Leap Consulting, an organization that works a bit like we do at Potential Squared with different organizations teaching leadership. He works right across the Americas and, and organizations he's worked with, including NASA, Saks Fifth Avenue, UBS Bank, And he brings a different style from his background, where he was a high diver. Um, So we talk about that in the uh, podcast today. He's a cancer survivor. He's a father. uh, And with his work and his authoring of a book called Courage Goes to Work, he's introduced a new practice called Courage Building. But he's also through Leaders Open Doors, which became a number one bestseller in the leadership training category, all royalties from that book are donated to programs that support kids with special needs. And that tells you a lot about where Bill comes from in terms of his gifts to others. Um, and today, you're going to get a chance of having a gift from Bill Treasure to hear his story. So, enjoy. I'm delighted to be joined all the way from North Carolina from a place called Asheville, which is not too far in Black Mountain, which is not too far away from where I wrote part of the book that's coming out in September, but uh, it's a beautiful part of the world. And I'm delighted to, to be joined by, to link that to one of the, the beautiful people in my life who I've met through ISA, uh, Bill Treasure. Bill, welcome to the, the show today. Colin, how terrific it is to be able to spend time with you patching in from Asheville, North Carolina, here in the beautiful mountains on a beautiful day with beautiful folks like yourself. So I look forward to catching up. Good. Bill, we're going we're gonna to take a, a journey around a number of things uh, into your background, maybe just do some joint views around leadership and particularly around the courage piece and risk-taking that is the, the heart of your work. But give the listeners a bit of a history about yourself, a potted history. Yeah. So I was born uh, 18 miles from New York City. I grew up oh. in Westchester, New York. Uh, born and raised there. And if you cut me off in traffic, you'll still see a little New York come out of me. Uh, And then I went on to school at West Virginia University, where I was a springboard diver. And uh, I'm sure that some of that will factor into what we talk about a little bit later, because you learn a lot uh, about being wrong when you're diving, because it's the way you learn how to get things right. Um, from there, I went in, into my career in a roundabout way. I've got a sort of unusual career background, but I, I am in the area. I'm a practitioner for the last 30 years of leadership development. I designed, developed, deliver comprehensive leadership programs for emerging and experienced leaders. And oftentimes that involves executive coaching. Along the way, I've worked with small boutique consulting companies like High Performing Systems, Uh, And then I went on to a company called Executive Adventure, where we did outdoor experiential team building, facilitated some 300 experiential team building events. That often involves failure, by the way. Uh, And then I got some big consulting experience by working with Accenture in their human performance practice and uh, became their first full-time internal executive coach. 9-11 happened and it It was an existential crisis in my life, and I decided to go out on my own 
And now I've had my business, Giant Leap Consulting, for about 20 years. And we uh, are in, we are a courage-building co- consulting company. We do it in three ways. We help companies set a bold future. If you want to have a bold culture, you got to start with bold goals. And we set a bold future through strategic planning. We call it Courageous Future. The second thing that we do is design, develop, and deliver comprehensive leadership programs because it's the leaders that are going to be instrumental in moving you towards that bold future. So we build courageous leadership. And of course, leaders don't get things done by themselves. They have to mobilize teams of people that act in a courageous-like way in order to be able to execute on the strategy. So strategic planning, uh, leadership development, and team building, courageous future, courageous leadership, and courageous teaming. That, in a nutshell, is my potted uh, history. Uh, and along the way, I've written some books on leadership. And I'm a dad. I'm a dad of three teens. So if that uh, wow, get a that's lot of courageous. Wrong, it's <laughs> courageous. And, and that's where I get most of my things wrong, is being a, a parent to my kids. <laughs> Me too. Me too. I've got to hold my hand up and say I am in there. So let, let I mean, Giant Leap Consulting. Let's link it back to the the high high diving uh, in there. And when you're talking high, this is where my fear of heights comes in. When you're talking high diving, how high are you talking? And yeah. for those listening in the UK in meters, or is it? Are you converting into feet? What are you going to do? <laughs> Maybe I'll do both. Uh, okay. So I um, typically so and, and keep in mind to for your listeners that. I'm a high diver who's afraid of heights, and, it, and yeah. it's unusual to me that, that a lot of times the very thing that pokes you in the chest and says, you, you're afraid of me, becomes your challenge. It's like, what are you going to do about your fear, buddy? It's like a bully, right? Like, it's like, hey, man, you're afraid of heights. What are you going to do about it? And uh, and I've seen, uh, you know, podcasters, I've seen radio personalities that started out as stutterers. Same yeah. thing. It's like, you know, somebody poked them in the chest and said, hey, man, you stutter. What are you going to do about this? Yeah. So I went in the movement of my, you know, fear of heights. And here I am. I, I became a high diver. And we were diving from 100 feet. That's about 27 meters. Wow. Traveling at speeds in excess of 50 miles an hour. I don't know. Maybe that's like 70 kilometers an hour. Yeah, yeah. Uh, into a little pool that was 10 feet deep or about, what about uh, three uh, less wow. than three meters, two and a half meters deep. Yeah. Ten, ten so you gotta you gotta stop pretty quickly when you hit that water. Then basically, what you, you do, <laughs> you do. It's a it's a sensitive trick actually, and if you don't stop, uh, you'll jam your feet. I, in fact, I joined a troop of athletes the day after a guy broke both of his ankles. Wow. Uh, and then if you do it too quickly, that water is going at fifty miles an hour fast where it doesn't belong so you've got to get the uh you've got to get the, the timing has to be done exactly right i've got a visual image i don't particularly want to have there but yeah that's that's great so um talk to me about that because that poking in the the chest and I, I i'm a big believer in that there's certain things you face and i've got a massive fear of heights but i went and did a bond bungee jump of 125 meters uh, in a bridge in New Zealand. And at the time, people were saying, why Why did you do it? And I said, it was a change in my life and a point. But I spent three days in a complete high afterwards. It was just yeah. incredible. So Right. Probably you spent three days in a high on that because it was a limitation of yours. And you had confronted it. Mm-hmm. And it was like a wow moment. Like, I, I really did this. I confronted something that was limiting me, holding me back. And maybe to some, I felt a certain sense of shame or embarrassment or humiliation because of this thing. And now I went through it and worked through it. For me, same thing. I was a pipsqueak diver 
Uh, and, but I was afraid of heights. I remember when I was a little kid, my dad took my brother and I to the top of the Empire State Building. And the two of them were looking down at the city and I was pressed up against the wall. That would be me. I was a good low board diver. I won the Westchester County Diving Championships three times. But as I went, got ready to go to college, colleges would dangle scholarships in front of me and they'd say, hey, Billy, you're a great low board diver. Tell us about your high board list of dives. And I didn't have a high board list of dives because of my fear of heights. And a lot of times risk taking is a decision. Will I, won't I, can I, can't I, should I, shouldn't I? get off this platform of safety. And a lot of times the platform is I'm stuck in fear. Am I going to yeah. stay here on this platform of safety because I'm afraid? But I had a coach who would take me down to Iona College in Nourishelle, New York. And to this day, Colin, I've never seen another diving board anywhere in the world like this diving board. This, this diving board was special because it was built on a hydraulic lift. Wow. So now he could take me from one meter and just move it up to one and a half meters. And, and that, so that was enough to push me outside of my comfort zone. Yeah. Uh, and we don't learn in comfort, as you know, mm -hmm. we learn in discomfort and you get a lot of things wrong on your way to getting things right. And, mm -hmm. and at one and a half meters, I'm upset with him. I don't even want to go to practice. My heart's racing. I feel like a failure. I'm getting my dives wrong, even more wrong than before. Uh, but after a hundred, 200, 300 dives, I get used to it and I build competency and I gain competent confidence as a result yeah. of competency. And that's his time. That's his cue. When I start getting a little bit bored and maybe a little complacent, he moves it now up to two meters. Yeah. Same, same process. I'm upset with him. I don't want to go to practice. I'm doing screaming belly whoppers. I'm getting well, welts on my back. Yeah. And, uh, and eventually I get confidence and competence and he moves up to three meters. And that process of modulating between comfort and discomfort uh, eventually led to me getting a full scholarship to college. I wouldn't have been able to go to college if it yeah. wasn't for the scholarship that I got. But then I carried on that tradition and became a high diver by doing that, you know, incrementalism on, on the way, uh, the journey up to the top. What's interesting, I think, <laughs> is I also, when I later worked for Executive Adventure. And we would take senior executives in the outdoors, a lot of times like overweight, balding men, yep. like I look today. <laughs> That's a lie, folks, by the way, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, we'd give, and we'd make them uncomfortable. We, yeah. We'd you know, create a levelless environment, playground, like you mm -hmm. say. And we'd put them through experiential activities where none of them had done them before. Sometimes they were 40 feet in the air doing like a pamper pole or doing a high ropes course and moving them purposely into discomfort where they're all awkward together. They've not done it before. They make some mistakes, but to get to the backside of it and they have the elation that you have, yeah. that they, they did something that they were really afraid of and petrified of. And then they're walking on air for three days. Like you did when you did your bungee jump. And I, you know, the incremental piece is a fascinating analogy, and I love that. I'd love to go see that diving board just to see it. You know, there's that piece, because I, when I was growing up, we had the high man, as we called it, and the, the swim pool, which was, wasn't was a spring loaded. It was just a, an edge and you drop, you know. But that was, and when you looked at it, you saw the people going, oh, I can do that. I can just jump. And then you get up there, and it's like, no way am I going anywhere, anywhere near this. <laughs> but when we think about leadership, one of the, the questions I have in my mind because there's a few listeners are going to be saying, okay, so that sounds like you've been pushed out of it. You've been poked to do something. 
and as leaders, there's sometimes nowadays that it it seems like leadership is about pushing people to do things they don't want to do. But there was something about the way you talked about that that was engendering, lighting a fire inside you as well as, you know, under your backside then. Yeah. What's your view on leadership and courage? Yeah. Well, the so I think that a leader has two responsibilities when it comes to courage. And, and bear in mind, I also think that there's two kinds of leaders when it comes to courage. There are people, and I think that this is the most common way of leading, and that is to inject people with fear and anxiety as a way to motivate them to get things done or as a way to keep them conscientious. It's like, whatever you do, don't drop that ball. If you drop that ball, you realize it, it's going to be a glass everywhere and you're going to be in big trouble. So don't drop it. Yeah. And, and we work through fear to motivate people, which actually displaces their courage. And I call them spillers mm-hmm. versus the leader who's like, all right, it's really important. We keep the ball up in the air. And here's some ways that we keep the ball up in the air. I know you can do it. I'm right here. I've kept the ball in the air. And we're going to try to keep this ball up in the air together. And that's an encouraging leader. They put courage inside of you. And I call them a filler because they're filling you with courage versus displacing your courage. Now, back to the two responsibilities that leaders have. First is if they want to get people to have initiative, to try things they've not done before, to experiment and innovate, then they've got to be the first ones to do it. So they've got a role model, right? Like they've got to be the first ones up and off whatever high dive platform they're asking people to jump off of. They've got to have occasionally a leader needs to make sure that they've got sweaty palms, that they're doing something that causes their insides to, you know, let them know that they're not in Kansas anymore physiologically. Uh, And that's job number one, role model courage. But job number two for a leader, and, and it may sound crass, and it may sound overbearing, but the second job of a leader is to make people uncomfortable. Now, I don't mean it in a fear stoking way. And I spent a lot of time in our courage building workshops talking about the negative impacts of fear-based leadership. But I do mean it in a way that a leader holds you accountable to your own potential. Sometimes it's latent potential that they see before you see. And they believe in you before you believe in yourself. My coach took me down to Iona College because he wasn't going to let me turn away from the probability and possibility of becoming a high diver or at least getting a high board list of dives because he could see the value of a college education for me when I was yeah. like ready to be like, well, I guess I'll have to give up another sport. No, we're going down to Icona College, right? Because he cared about me, not because he was being punitive or trying to make me purposely afraid, but it does require nudging you out into discomfort and a leader's got to pay attention how much absorbability of discomfort can this person withstand? I don't want them to choke and feel fight, fright, or freeze and get petrified, but I do need to get them a little bit out into discomfort where they experience their courage zone. You could also call it their learning zone. I love that. And, and what I love is that your definition makes people uncomfortable because we have a definition of leadership which is agitating for the future. So as long as it's towards a purpose, as long as it's towards something, that they can see a value in what they're doing, that that's, that's great. It's when people are pushing people towards something where they're going, so why am I doing this? Why spend all the time doing this? So, right. Yeah. I, I love this. Uh, there's a quote by Ginny Rometty. She Virginia Rometty is the CEO of IBM. And she said, comfort and growth don't coexist. 
you know, so so if you want to grow and progress and evolve and develop and learn, learning involves discomfort. Learning involves being uncomfortable. And, you know, it's almost maybe cliche, but it's learning to be comfortable, uh, becoming comfortable with discomfort. Yeah. And I, I listening to a book called Peak Performance um, the other day, and it was that stress plus rest equals growth. So it's not just continuous stress it's that ability to reflect to purposefully practice as you were doing at a certain level and then to grow and working in there so that yeah there's another great uh, self-help book one of the best self-help books i ever read and it was called the power of full engagement Mm. by jim lair and tony schwartz and tony schwartz is the co-author of the art of a deal with donald trump uh, <laughs> although they had a schism, they had a break off. Uh, but but the powerful engagement has that same idea, you know, stress and then rest. It's this idea that they call strategic disengagement. Like you've got moments of furious engagement where you're intensely engaged on the thing that you're doing that is outside your comfort zone. Uh, but then you need moments of strategic disengagement to replenish, rejuvenate, you know, re- get some perspective before you go back into the heavy engagement. So there's go back to the sailing the ship out of the harbor. Then I think we're uh, we're onto something here around. There's a there's a stretch piece. So it's stretching. It's a bit like going to the gym. You're not going to do a heavy heavy weight straight away. You're going to work up towards what you're trying to do, and what you're trying to do is get your mind used to through purposeful practice, almost practicing something till it becomes a habit, and then pushing something else in the practice. So if you were to define the the, the leadership that you do. Um, and how you teach leaders. What are the purposeful practice pieces that you put into your programs that you would you would have over any others? What would they be? Mm, that I'd have over any others? Well, I will say that I still, even though it's been 25 years since I worked at Executive Adventure, mm-hmm. I still do experiential uh, activities in a, a workshop. Now, whereas back in the day when I worked at EA, we called it, it would be a, a full day of like eight experiential activities, one after the other, and then process the activity. Now we do in you know internal concept of teach people a framework, move into experiential breakouts and, and dialogue, and then maybe do one, possibly two, experiential activities outside of the room. Uh, so it's still a, a great way of knocking people off balance a little bit. And the way that we call it is to help them catch themselves being themselves by moving into discomfort because you can stay, you know, so imagine you're doing a leadership workshop and, and, and lately I'm doing more workshops that have some element about managing stress, managing anger, you know, it's attached to emotional intelligence. If I want to be a leader, I don't want to be freaking out and transmitting my anger at people and such so let's talk about self-care and let's talk about your own ability to manage stress. And it looks great on paper and you can look through PowerPoint slides and hear the lecture and talk about it at your table. But now let's put you in a stressful environment through an experiential activity. It's harmless. It's actually fun. It's actually engaging. But suddenly we could amp up a little bit of safe stress and these contorted behaviors, this curt behavior comes out. And then we can help them catch them. Then we, after the activity is done, where they probably have failed a little bit, then we can hold up the mirror and say, you know, how did the way we react in this simple, fun, innocuous activity in some small way reflect how we act back at work when the deadline gets accelerated or when a client gets upset with us or when the revenue and margin is going to be lower on this project than we expected? You know, what do we do with that stuff? 
Yeah, and I, I love what we're talking about because I know we're also dipping into the world of VR uh, together because what, I, what we're talking about here is immersion, aren't we? And when you immerse somebody in something, and, and I'm not a, you know, when I look back and people say, oh, experiential learning, learning is, or outdoor learning is, as called in the UK, it's passe. And I'm like, no, it's not. No, because... Right. Because for me, it's still an immersion. It's still an experiential piece. So even if we're getting the likes of VR and other things coming in, there's nothing like either falling out your thinking in the middle of nature or falling out your thinking when you're suddenly surrounded by an issue, a problem you need to solve with people and humans. And leadership is the human element. So when we come to that in the immersion piece, you know, what the, the courage piece is an interesting one because the courage is about overcoming something. What do you think the biggest barriers are that you're seeing, particularly at the moment in leadership? Uh, in leadership now, well, I see, you know, the common, most common barrier that I run into relative to leadership and, and a lot of the work, the, a lot of the leadership folks that I work with are new leaders, which mm. I really love. It's a, it's mm. a, it's a very um, open uh, yeah. audience. It's people who's, who are eager to learn. Uh, but the most common malady, I'd say, of a, of a new leader is, you know, we first of all, we let's remember how we get into a leadership role. We get in there through self-performance. We do a great job at something ourselves. We're really productive. We knock a lot of items off the to-do list. We can shovel more stuff than somebody else. And the bosses say, hey, that person, let's put them in a leadership role because they did so good by themselves. And and now now we put them in a leadership role, and we hardly ever do we give them a playbook, much less a leadership development program. And they're groping with how to do it. And what do they do? They fall back on what made them successful in the past, trying to do everything themselves. Except now they got a team of people, and and the most common malady I find is the inability to delegate, and they get subsumed in trying to do everybody else's work, or at least know everybody else's work, and tell everybody how to do their work. And it because they get mired down in the thin, uh, the thick of thin things, right? They get stuck in the, the weeds. Thick of thin things, I love it. Well, that, yeah, I can't claim credit for that. That's uh, Stephen Covey, right? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That yeah, was why I was resonating. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but they get stuck in the weeds, and and then I find that a person their their career will plateau right there if they don't learn how to leverage the people around them. And, and by the way, delegation serves two purposes. Yes, it's good for the leader, him or herself, because it frees them up to be more strategic. But it also is a, it's the way that you develop your people is by giving them more substantial tasks to do. So the idea of inability to delegate, and then I find that the most common way that they learn to delegate is capitulation. They get so subsumed and so double booked and you know, that they have at some point they just cry uncle. They're like, okay, I have, I have no choice. I'm going to have to delegate and yeah. I'm going to have to trust that this is going to get done. So yeah. that's one big malady I see. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I have a, an old client friend who used to talk about, I give my people rope and they choose to whether they hang themselves or not. And I thought, well, that sounds a bit like your capitulation PC. You know, it's, <laughs> it really is. But, but that ability to have space is a, is a core thing. Talk, talk to me about the, the, the definition of the giant leap and why you named it. I get it's courage, but then you talked about incremental learning yourself and the giant leap. Yeah. yeah. So giant leap, when I started the business, I just, I wanted to think, you know, Bill Treasure doesn't know so much about so many things. 
But the one thing that I did learn is this unusual experience, having been a person who was afraid mm-hmm. of heights and yep. stood at the edge of a risk 1,500 times. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I learned the cadence of that risk of how to stay present when you're fully immersed in fear and still get off that platform somehow. And I thought there must be something in that, in that, in that one second to get off that perch that could be shareable with other people. So I wrote an article, it got published in Training Magazine, a different version of the article got published in TND Magazine. And I thought I might be onto something. I wrote a book called Right Risk, 10 Powerful Principles for Taking Giant Leaps with Your Life. And then I thought this, this metaphor of the giant leap, like you mentioned in the, you know, the local community pool, there's the high board. There's actually a Norman Vincent, a Norman Rockwell, sorry, Norman Rockwell painting of a guy peering over the edge of the high board, looking down at the little pool below. That's almost a metaphor for, for people of fear, of, of the challenge of excitement, uh, of that mixture of excitement and fear at the same time. And will I, won't I get off this platform? And I thought that that would be the metaphor for my company, Giant Leap Consulting. I used to take giant leaps for a living, but now I want to help people take their metaphorical high dive, whatever it is, And when we do our courage building programs, and I show them my high dive at some point, the next segment we move into is what's that person's high dive for this year, for 2021? What's the high dive you know you're going to need to take, the platform of safety you need to get off of? And then they they do reflection on that, and then they dialogue. They get into group and pairs sharing their high dive, their giant leap that they're going to be taking, and they give encouragement to one another, you know. The other person is allowed to ask them what fears they might need to confront in order to get this thing done, what resources they might need, what what past experiences can they draw upon. And then after they have that peer coaching, then they can offer some guidance and advice, but not criticism. Mm -hmm. So so it's a metaphor, giant leap consulting for getting off that platform and helping people take pretty big leaps through incrementalism. Um, as an aside, I did start a, another company in 2018, Little Leaps Press, and it's <laughs> my, my press company. So I've got the Little Leaps and the Giant Leaps covered, but somebody else is going to have to do the Medium Leaps. The Medium Leaps. It doesn't sound so good, Medium Leaps. <laughs> little Leaps. And, yeah. So I wanted to pick up on something you talked about, because on the Little Leaps and Giant Leaps, one of the people that you introduced me to through ISA, which is the organization where we met, was the, the amazing Gloria, delicious Gloria, and what she did. Because there's a piece in here that everybody thinks leadership, delegation, you know, whatever it is, but but there's a conversation to be had around certain things. And she is, and to use her words, delicious at the ability to bring a different level of conversation. How did you meet her and how do you, how do you use her to, to help you work? Yeah, so uh, Gloria Cotton is who we're, we're talking mm-hmm. about. And as many of your listeners will know, certainly in the last five years, more prominently in the last two and a half years, uh, companies have really started to amp up their intensity of focusing on the idea of inclusion. And, and there have been, you know, obviously, certainly in the United States, but not limited to the United States, there have been a number of instances and instances that prompted that. Michael Brown first, Trayvon Martin, George Floyd, others. And so my client, one of my clients, we with our leadership program, one of the things that we'll do is mobilize strategic action teams. And that action team, so imagine you have a cohort of 30 people, 
And then you take the cohort and subdivide them into, say, six groups of five. And that group of five will be a strategic action team for some duration during the leadership program. And that group of five will research some uh, opportunity for the company or something, initiative that the company really needs to be paying attention to. And it's a way for the company to extract value from the leadership program before these people move on to senior leadership roles. So it's, it's good for the company. It's like right. their own internal consulting company. Yeah. And so one group was working with one of my companies and they, they were focused on the idea of diversity and inclusion and coming to the recognition that their company hasn't done enough in this area. And then they went there through their own struggles, by the way. They had you know people from the South and the North on this team and people rejecting the idea. There's not even racism in this country. What are you talking about? I mean, it's the, they really had to evolve themselves. Yeah. But they came to the conclusion that they needed to do more in the area of diversity. They put a diversity program together, but they didn't know anything about diversity, right? Except mm-hmm. that because it was a very non-diverse culture. And then they, they found this resource, Gloria Cotton, in you know, in Chicago and where this company is based. And this company, you know, it's in the construction uh, area and it's mostly white males. And here comes Gloria Cotton, this African-American woman. And, and nobody knows what to expect, including us who brought her in. Yeah. And she goes right into the belly of the beast, right? Mm-hmm. Like right, right here in the middle of white people whose arms are folded with skepticism, <laughs> men, who've yeah. earned their, I've earned everything myself. I did it all by my own merit. I don't yeah. want to be told that I need to hire certain people. And, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. and uh, here she comes. And no, not with a finger pointed in anybody's face, no. but through her own personhood, the stories she shared, the values she communicated, some of the experiential activities she did with us, she just disarmed everyone and won the group over in the same way that she won a, you know, our group over with ISA yeah. when we got to meet her. And the, the good news is I brought her into another client since then, and she's come back to the first client since then and has now been introduced to ISA. So it's an important subject. Talk about mm-hmm. discomfort, right? Oh, yeah. The, the uncomfortable conversations that are necessary, and it's way easier to avoid them and let's mm-hmm. stay the status quo, then let's have hard conversations in a respectful way and figure out how to leave this world a better place. And leaders have to be involved in that conversation. You can't be on the sidelines on that. Mm-hmm. No, I would agree. And, and, and I think this is what she was able to do was she was able to put some principles out here about being welcoming. She was able to put some principles about equity. And I, I, I wanted to put that up because the conversations we need to have with our people um, as leaders, are tough. Um, and there's no tougher conversation, as you say, than that conversation around diversity and inclusion. So how, if we take Gloria and we take an example of that, and you're a, you're talking to a leader at the moment who is struggling with conversations, the courage of having those conversations and changing, particularly, let's take the topic now of hybrid working, yeah, mm, mm. and moving back, which you and I know is going to shift the change and change the way we work. It's going to shift and change the way people are working. What are the conversations you think that we need to be having in there? I'm going to put you on the spot because it's a, it's a tough one. I don't know <laughs> it, if I've got the answer. I'm hoping you a, do. <laughs> <laughs> it is a tough one. To, to Gloria, you know, for a second, that I, I even keep the words that she taught us. Oh, uh, because I, I think they're so important, right, about making people feel welcomed, valued, respected, heard, 
understood and supported that every human being has those basic needs to feel those things mm. and that leaders need to do this. I think in the hybrid world, the that leaders need to first recognize that we're not going back to 2018. Yeah. And so their, their own sentimentality and romanticism of the past and gravity may want them to move in that direction. You know, we just need to get everybody back to the office the way it was. Yeah. There, there needs to be some recognition that some population of people, there might be some departments that don't need to come back in that way. And or there that there will be some people who will have a preference, maybe not all the time, but for some limited amount of remote working. That, that we have to recognize that this becomes the legacy, partly. The hybrid is the word, right? That, that, and, and I don't even think that the hybrid is temporary, right? Like, I don't no. think it's just this t- temporary condition that gets us back to 2018 and 19. I think it's a, a semi-permanent position that, that, that uh, and that, so the leader, the conversation first is with him or herself. How was this experience for me? What did I learn about my own productivity during the pandemic when I couldn't be in the office? Did it hurt my ability to get things done? Was I still able to be effective with my team? In all likelihood, their answer is going to be yes. Yeah. Uh, and then they have to uh, have an honest conversation about with the team about, you know, l- with the recognition, we still need to stay. And this becomes the primary thing. We need to set parameters for the conversation. Mm-hmm. And that the first one is that in whatever we land on and decide that we need to remain a world-class commercial enterprise that, yeah. that you know, we don't get in the way of that, whatever we decide. And then with the team, start talking about how how can we honor that principle and still uh, honor the various wishes of the various people on our team? What do you want? What do you, you know, what have you learned in the pandemic about your own work? And what would we lose in not, you know, at least occasionally getting together face to face and in person? What would be lost yeah. if we didn't? You know, like if we had two continuums, I I don't want to be on a Zoom or a Skype or a Teams all the time. On the other hand, I don't want to go back to, you know, in room and Mm. meeting after meeting all the time. You know, so where is the place that we want to reside on this continuum between all virtual and all in person? What does it need to be in order to satisfy that, you know, being a world class commercial enterprise? And I'd love to go back to your analogy about the platforms and the leap off, because I think going back before COVID, when people were on their individual platforms, they were diving into different pools. The The virtual world was for the younger people with families, was almost one version of a nightmare for some with young families and how to homeschool. For others who were single, going back to a, a house by themselves and being or a apartment by themselves and having to work in there. So they were... They were coming off a joint platform, which is the work environment and the office. Now they're coming back from that virtual world and they're, they're diving into multiple platforms with no clear idea which pool they're diving into, how they're doing and working in there. So I think your analogy is interesting. What I was interested is when you pulled that piece of the Gloria uh, paper out with the words on it, I wonder if there's, this, there's a, almost as an answer in her words of welcome um, and other things unheard and understood. So valued and respected and supported, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which which I love about the the piece you said about the conversation with people. So for those people listening from the UK, 
Tell me about where the where your view of the U.S. is at the moment now, and uh, where the, the the work is going to go uh, in the, this year coming up. I know that's a tough question. What's your view? Is it going to be hybrid? Is it going to be virtual? Is it going to be office? What's your view? <laughs> for for the folks in the UK, what's it going to yeah. be? Yeah, <laughs> well, no, in the US, what's it going to be? Oh. we're we're looking in there. Yeah, what's yeah. your view? I, it's uh, I I do see that you know. So I was on a call yesterday, and we're. Mm. It's funny how different clients responded differently during COVID. I had one client that we we moved everything to virtual, and and we now delivered this two year program that we were doing was halfway through. The last year was done all virtually. And, and in fact, we did more for the participants in the cohort than they had if it would have been an in-person session. We met more nice. frequently, for one. We met every yeah. two weeks versus every two months. And, uh, and it was intense, and we were developing things on the fly, and it was great. I had another client who was in the midst, in the halfway point of a great first-time program for them. They had never done leadership development before. We had just launched a program six months earlier. It was really enthusiastic, inspired. We did one virtual training and they, they said, it's just not the same. Let's hold it until, you know, it's only going to be another more month of COVID. So, right. you know, it's going to be over in July. So we'll just wait a month. And then it was like, well, it might go until August. So we'll wait another month. Well, they, you know, they waited the whole year. They, and oh. So we, we just started kicking off our conversations about reinstituting that program. Mm -hmm. And the decision was made that we need to do it live mm -hmm. for one Many, not enough, of uh, people in the United States have gotten vaccinated. Yeah. And there is sort of this, you get vaccinated and you feel like Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, like you start strutting around and like you take your mask off and you're like, yeah, yeah like <laughs> you could do it again, right? And uh, so they had already met once in person and now decided that their, their program is going to be in, in person. And I have another client I'm working up with in uh, Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. I'm getting ready to do something this month. It's funny, though, that I have a client that I've already been working with, even in the heart of COVID, in Alabama, face-to-face, -face, in person. Uh, you know, now we had to, we wore our masks and they had protocols yeah. in the room, space and distance and such. So I think it's going to be hybrid. Um, and I think that the, the struggle is, you know, COVID was bad. And I know you may know people. I know people had it. Yeah. I, I uh, know some who had it mildly and some who had it bad. I didn't know anybody who died. I know people who know people who, who died. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, I don't want to minimize COVID. But for yeah. a lot of people, including me, mm -hmm. I kind of liked being home a yeah. lot more. Yeah. And, and people now, I think, have decided, okay, I can have both, right? I can be a present parent. I can be somebody who is uh, involved in my home life and have a career. And I don't have to be on the crazy train that I was on in 2019. Now, I think that, you know, a lot of people are making these unusual life choices in the same way I did in 2001 after 9-11. People are having an existential, uh, existential moment. Do What is, how much do I want to spend time in a commute an hour each way to work? You know, how much, what is this idea of eight to five and the regimen of that, you know, um, and can I be just as productive, you know, at least a few days working from home. So I think we're, we're it is hybrid and that we're still figuring it out, but I don't think we're going back to what was.
No, and I think some organizations are looking at certain operational functions and saying, if you're trying to work with Asia, you're trying to work with Europe, trying to work with the US, it makes sense to avoid the commute and be there. Certain functions, it's it's going to be in there to, to be, as you say, in a group and a certain sales function is saying, you know, we want to be together because that's how we buzz and we, we riff off each other. Well, that's true, right? There's some groups that kind of need to be in that high-performing team environment where the, you know, like a marketing group, it's going to be, I want those ideas going, right? But I was talking to a few people that are in estimating, right? They estimate Mm. the work for their construction and they're like, I love working alone. I love getting the data in my spreadsheet and I can toss that spreadsheet to somebody else and get on a Zoom call afterwards and I'm just as productive. And these are good, loyal employees who never would have said that before the pandemic. Yeah, it's interesting. So I've got two two questions for you that I always ask, and and I think you've hinted at one, but I might be assuming what your answer is. So one is uh, sailing your ship out of the harbor. What's the, what's the time that you really pushed yourself, sailed your ship out of the harbor, that resonates to you in your life? I'll give you one that was recent, and it may not be a gigantic thing, but it was. I realized during COVID. I realized that there was a whole side to Bill Treasurer Mm. that hadn't been introduced to the social media community, that every time I went on LinkedIn, if I posted something, or even if I did an occasional video, it was like, let me give a lesson so I could interest people in my business. It was was like, you know, it's like with motive. It's like, I'm going to give you a morsel in order to get you interested in my business. And And I realized in COVID, I started reconnecting with a lot of spiritual literature and other books that had inspired me along the way, uh, whether it be uh, Anthony DeMello or Richard Rohr or Joseph Campbell or Carl Jung. And I started to connect with that stuff again and realized there's a whole side to Bill Treasure that people just don't have never met. And so during this masked moment, I created an unmasked series of videos. There was 10 videos called Unmasked, where, and by the way, my hair had gotten longer, I had grown you know, hair on my face. And this was my Beatles moment. (laughs) (laughs) And I shared stuff, right? I mean, I shared about uh, how I came came close to a divorce. I shared the story about that. Uh, I shared stories about um, insecurities that I've had along the way and uh, stories about my true feelings about the stuff, my story about how too much rationality, too much head thinking and not enough heart thinking can be a road straight to hell. It's, it's actually sort of out of uh, Dante's Inferno. And so I, I shared stuff that was not really so businessy. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know, and you know, put that stuff on LinkedIn. LinkedIn's pretty business. Yeah. And, um, and the reaction initially, first of all, there was hardly any reaction. Like, the, <laughs> like no, hard, nobody's clicking on this stuff. Right? Yeah. Which also became a contemplation for me. Like, why is it important for anybody to put their mm-hmm. selfie or whatever out there? Um, but then over time, it was, first of all, it was more vulnerable. It was Bill mm-hmm. Treasure exposed. Yeah. And coming out of that experience, I, I stopped the series. I did 10. And, and I said that from now on, I'm going to be in communion with my uh, you know, followers, but not just followers, just mm-hmm. people. And in conversation with a more authentic, here's me. Sometimes it's going to be pungent. Sometimes it's going to be vulnerable. Sometimes it's going to be, but, but it's not going to be me selling something to you, pitching. Nice. You with nice. That's, that's refreshing, Bill, because, you know, we've met through the warmth and on committees and, 
and the engagement. That's the bill I knew, yeah. And the the bill I started to discover now, and I, actually the, just that moment there, is a bill that really I want to hear more about because that's you've got a great deal of experience in the background that will is valuable, yeah. Yeah. yeah so that good. that's my safe harbor. Yeah. Uh, you know, here I am, fifty eight years old. I have a courage building company, and now I'm finally getting enough courage to be. <laughs> The, Cobble, the, the, cobbler's children as they say yeah, in the uk yeah so exactly one uh here's a story that uh one of my clients is a construction company in chicago it's a different one than the other one uh and they they're my longest running client i've worked with them for almost 17 years now much of it on retainer and i was and i and i really love them right like i've grown to love my client and Along the way, I kept hearing about they wanted to, you know, we need our people to be more accountable. Yeah, people aren't accountable enough around here. We, we just hold them accountable. Like leaders doing this accountability to people. And so I heard it enough times that I was like, you know what? I'm going to develop a accountability class and, and I'm going to roll it out to this VP level group that I'm working with. So I pulled together the stuff. I surveyed the VPs. I did a session with them. And, and nobody, I just... My thinking was, I'm going to do this for the good of my client. They didn't ask me to do it, but I love them so much, I'm going to do it for them. So I surveyed the senior, you know, the VP group, did a session with them. The VPs liked it. It was a useful session. They evaluated it very strong. And then I thought, ah, I'm going to bring this information to the senior executive team that I also work with, the CEO and his senior EVPs. And they're going to love it because I'm, you know, and so I revealed the data about the VPs that had some questionable things about the senior executives. Uh, and, the, and the survey itself was one of these oddball things where, you know, this question was rated one to five and one to five means right to left. But in this question, we actually have to reverse our thinking because it goes five to one. And, and the CEO got, he, he's finally, wait, wait, wait a minute, so you say that one again, that one's in reverse. And then he stopped and, and he said, Bill, Bill, you this isn't your work. This isn't what you, this, this isn't your quality that we're used to. This isn't your work. And you didn't even ask us to do it. You just did it. And you're telling me that the VPs are disappointed with things about us. I, I don't know what to say. He was so upset. And I had underestimated the sensitivity that the mm -hmm. senior executive team was going to get about this, the, the VP team. And I didn't, I hadn't asked them. I, I was like, there's a certain arrogance on my part as a consultant. Yeah. It's like classic consulting arrogance where you come in and I'm going to give you the answer because I know what you need. More yeah, than yeah. You know what you need. I never brought, brought anybody into that process to shape the session, to shape the agenda, to inform it, you know, give me a guest speaker, nothing. I just did it to them, not with them. And that was a, a huge lesson for me. And, and of course, I felt self-righteous. I'm like, I did it for them. I was doing what was in there. Here, I went out of my way to do that. They didn't even pay me extra to do this. But the more I sat with it, I realized it was my own arrogance. Yeah, I love it. And it, it's, it sums up to me the quote by Jimi Hendrix, which knowledge speaks, wisdom listens. And it's that first piece. I've done it so many times where you don't listen to what their exam question is in their heads, then do the work. Whereas yeah. consultants were coming in and were borrowing the watch to tell the time without even asking them. Yeah, it's that that piece in there. It's interesting. Yeah, but I wouldn't take it back, right? Like I, yeah. I, I would. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I wish I could do it differently. But the, you know, uh, you talk about Jimi Hendrix quote. What one of my favorite Mark Twain quotes is: "Good judgment is a result of experience." Yeah, 
And experience is the result of bad judgment. Yeah. And and that was bad judgment on my part, but I gained some experience and wisdom because of yeah. it. And because of our pain points we learn. Bill, it was it was fantastic for you to be on here and sharing. If people want to find out more about you, uh, where would they go to find find you? You know, if you Google Bill Treasure, you're gonna come up with stuff, but uh billtreasurer.com and then giantleapconsulting.com. Mm. It's easier to just remember couragebuilding.com and that'll take you to the same place as Giant Leap. Fantastic. Bill, appreciate it all the way from Asheville. And if somebody's let the dogs out behind you somewhere around the way, yeah, I've had the fat boy Harley going in this side and you've had the dogs. It's been great. Good That's to speak awesome. to you, sir. Thank you for you, being You on. got it, buddy. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, tremendous luck with your book. I can't wait till it comes out so the world can benefit from it. Take care, Bill. Cheers. We'll talk to you. Be good. Cheers. So that was Bill Treasurer. Uh, such a lovely man. I love the fact that he's been a high-diving team captain, and I love the fact that he's taken that into a business that he calls Giant Leap Consulting. And I love that the fact he uses courage and courage building as his, his pillars for his business. But the man himself is, is an example of somebody who collaborates with us, collaborates with others, and brings people into an inner circle that allows others to, to share his ideas, share his energy, and share his thoughts. So I'm delighted to have Bill on this, this podcast today. I will look forward to seeing you or welcome you on another podcast on the Leadership Tales coming up soon. Mm-hmm.